Welcome to episode three of the Missing Stone podcast. This week, I spoke with founder and director of Utah Mountain Lion Conservation, Denise Peterson. We discussed how Denise's work on a research vessel encouraged her to return to school and pursue mountain lion conservation and the struggles of forming your own nonprofit. We then talk about the importance of blending education, research, and advocacy when reaching for your conservation goals. And finally, how Utah's House Bill 469 is impacting mountain lions today. If you would like to learn more about Utah Mountain Lion Conservation or follow their progress, you can find their website and social media links below. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back in, everyone. I am super excited to announce my guest today, founder and director of the Utah Mountain Lion Conservation, Denise Peterson. How's it going, Denise? It's going great. It's a beautiful day here in Utah, and I'm so happy to be here with you guys. So what's a normal day look like for you before we jump into kind of your background and everything? Yeah, so... Normal days are not normal. There's no such thing as like a conventional day. But a normal day in the field is a lot of fun. We'll go up into the mountains and cut off trail and look for sign, find areas where we could maybe get some cameras up. Or we'll go out and do a camera check and see what kind of activity we're getting on our cameras and behaviors and things like that. So there's not really a normal day. There's just a lot of variety in what we do. So with all that field work, how much office work comes with running a nonprofit? Oh, goodness. I would say with us, probably a good 50-50 split given how we operate the nonprofit. So we're actually a fiscally sponsored nonprofit through social social and environmental entrepreneurs. They're a mouthful, sorry. Um, so they handle a lot of the admin and the paperwork side of things, which frees us up to do the education work and the field work and the research work that we need to do. So it's a really nice balance. And for anyone who's thinking about not going nonprofit, I highly recommend looking at a fiscal sponsor because it's just, I personally feel a lot more practical, especially for a small organization. That's awesome. So we all get into this to be in the field. And that's why kind of asking about the office work, a lot of that office work, you're carrying with you kind of your why. So I guess the best place to start, what's the first experience or moment that really drew you into conservation? That's a great question. And I would honestly say, and There are a lot of moments because I basically grew up outside. So being outdoors was like always near and dear to my heart. I love it. It's amazing. And so it's always something I've cared about, right? But what really drew me into conservation more than anything was when I was working on a research vessel in Lake Superior serving shepherds. And this is actually in Michigan. And we'd have mountain lions showing up in the state. And mountain lions were actually extirpated from Michigan years ago. And you'd hear people saying, oh, we're overrun with lions. There are so many lions here. And I'm like, I don't know if I believe you, (laughs) right? So it just opened the door to more questions. And so prior to my work in conservation, 
my background was in film and video. So with lions showing up in, in the Upper Peninsula, which is the UP. So if you hear me say UP, that's what I mean. Um, it sent me down this rabbit hole, which led me back to university where I studied wildlife biology, natural resources management, geographic information systems, which is GIS. And uh, really delved into the questions that I had about how are mountain lions moving through the landscape? How do they move through? Where are they going? What are their potential travel corridors? Things like that. So then I ended up going down to Peru and worked on a wild felid study down there, looking at ocelots and jaguars and pumas, which are the same thing as a mountain lion, uh, jaguandis, margays. And we used camera traps, camera traps extensively down there on that study. And I fell in love with it. So after I finished up school, we ended up moving to Utah because I didn't want to live in a state anymore that didn't have lions. Like that was just not appealing anymore. <laughs> so we moved to Utah in 2017. And pretty much just jumped right in. Like I was doing contract GIS work for different nonprofits at the time. So mapping mountain lion data, mortality data, movement data, land use data, habitat suitability analyses, things like that. And uh, ended up getting a job offer from Mountain Lion Foundation and Yellowstone to UNTIS Connection kind of simultaneously. <laughs> and there are two nonprofits that are doing different but similar work. So Mountain Lion Foundation is an advocacy uh, nonprofit that works nationwide. And then Yellowstone Uintas Connection is a smaller nonprofit that just focuses on Utah issues. Um, a little bit into Idaho and Wyoming too, but looking at like mining and how it impacts wildlife habitat and movement corridors and things like that. And I just fell in love with it, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just great work. Um, but in the back of my mind, I always kind of felt that there's a different, better way to be doing things. So, like, I didn't really feel like advocacy was my wheelhouse, per se, because in the back of my mind, I, I'm hardwired for research and analysis and everything like that. So... With Utah Mountain Lion Conservation, which is the nonprofit that I founded, um, I'm marrying the education component with the research component and letting the advocacy happen organically. So the thought process with Utah Mountain Lion Conservation is that we present people with information about mountain lions, not advocacy, not you need to go do this now because or else or however you want to frame it, these are mountain lions. This is how they actually are. And that's why we rely on camera traps so much, just to show people what they're actually like to kind of counter the stigmas that are associated with them because of their exposure in the media and just have a practical conversation with people about what lions are like and how we can coexist with them. And we've gained a lot of traction. So we're highly collaborative which is not something that I see as much in the advocacy realm. And I'd love to see more of because for us here, it's paid off in, in dividends. So we actually work 
we're partners on the Brigham Young University and Division of Wildlife Resources Cougar Study. And we were invited to be part of that study because we actually work with houndsmen. And we've actually talked to hunting groups. And we are not afraid to work with all of the different wildlife stakeholders to bridge those divides that we've seen over the years. So like in our conversations with houndsmen, for example, they've been saying that we've been hunting too many cats in Utah for years. So have the advocates and it's like, well, why don't we just work together? So we're working on bridging those divides. So it's kind of a multifaceted approach with what we do here. So there's a lot there that I definitely want to get into. Uh, The first thing, though, I do want to kind of go back to that beginning. So you mentioned that you were already uh, you'd already gone to college and were working when you first found that spark for conservation. So I guess a couple questions around there. The first one being, uh, do you is there a part of you that wishes you'd gotten that spark earlier? Or are you happy to kind of have gone down this separate path so that it's really given you this drive you have? Mm-hmm. No, I wouldn't change anything. Honestly, because I feel like everything that happens in our life leads us to where we need to be when we need to be there. Right. So if I hadn't gone through film school and ended up working in the Upper Peninsula where we were having these cats show up, I don't know if I'd have that same drive. Right. You never know because it's those experiences that you have in your life that lead you to that moment, that aha moment where this is like, oh, this is what I really, really care about. And so, no, I wouldn't change a thing about it. Um, In fact, I'm really grateful for every experience I had that put me on this path because now I realize how important these cats are to me. And they're honestly, literally the first thing I think about when I wake up and the last thing I think about before I go to sleep. So... No, 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 definitely. <laughs> Everything happens for a reason. Definitely. And it seems like, so when I'm in, out in the field uh, working in conservation, every time I get new technology, it's a huge learning curve. So having that film background, has that given you a leg up when you're kind of, especially working with camera traps the way you do, do you feel like it, lets you hit the ground running a lot faster instead of having to research equipment for longer, figure out what you need to do, how to work it, how to troubleshoot it. Does that film background really help? It does. It takes away a lot of that trepidation too, because sometimes it can be intimidating to branch off and do something completely different. Right. And so with the film background, knowing the equipment, knowing how to frame a shot and knowing what to look for when placing a camera right so like you don't want to set it facing east or west so you're gonna have the sun come up and blow out your shot you know so just little things like that really come into play and so with like the smaller browning recon force series it's it's not that complicated right it's it's really straightforward to use these cameras but when it comes to the film cameras those are a whole different animal they're actually um dslr cameras in Cognosis boxes. So there's a lot more that goes into setting the cameras up and composing the shots and making sure that the entire system communicates 
the way that it's supposed to, because when it doesn't, you lose some amazing shots. Um, but I think that, no, I know that that film background really helped cut down that learning curve when we started deploying these more complex trail cameras that we're using in our work. So I, there's always going to be new technology coming out. And the next series of camera traps that we're looking at, they're actually going to be a lot smaller. They'll actually fit in the palm of your hand, but they're still cinema quality. So we haven't used them yet. They'll be here later this month. Um, but I'm really excited to use them. And just, again, it's one of those things where this is a really incredible tool for conservation, these cameras. And I'm really ready to get them out in the field. So That's, so when you get a camera that small, it, do you foresee potential in getting cameras inside dens and other areas that right now we don't see a lot of footage outside of National Geographic really going in and spending a lot of time trying to get that footage? Just mm -hmm. a basic camera trap typically is a pretty consistent shot around the world. So do you see us getting a lot better shots and footage of these mountain lions? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Is that about I, as much as you can share? <laughs> that's about as much as I can share right now. Um, <laughs> I, I'm really having a hard time because I want to say so much more, but I can't. And um You'll see why in 2025. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, to answer the question more vaguely, yes. Um, there is an opportunity with these camera traps getting a lot smaller and more reliable and the, the production quality that we're getting out of them. Yes, they're going to be amazing tools for sharing these wildlife stories. And that's why with these Cambridge cameras that we're going to be getting here later this month, I can't wait to get them out into the field because, and this is where I would love if you were sharing video, because I could grab one of the Cognosis boxes and show you the size of that thing, which is pretty sizable. It, that's really hard to talk into a den without impacting the animals. So when you're setting on a den, you have to pull the cameras out, right? So you're not in their way. So it's a lot more intrusive. And so with our work, I prefer to be as um, I, I tried to try to not be as intrusive as possible. Right. So a lot of camera trappers use white flash. I don't touch white flash. It's a personal preference. I don't like it. Um, we've run white flash cameras a handful of times and I did notice an impact on wildlife. And so personally speaking, it's not something I'll ever use. Um, and also, I don't like the size of the bigger DSLR camera traps, which is why I'm really excited about these Cambush cameras that, again, will fit in your hands. And they're currently only shooting day footage. So it works out perfect, right? So it's going to give us a lot of really quality opportunities to get the footage that we want to get without impacting the animals, which is very near and dear to my heart. That's absolutely awesome. So I'm just excited to see where the technology goes in conservation in the future, because I feel like half the time I go in the field, you're transported back to the 1980s with the equipment that we're using. Mm -hmm. But so kind of going back to that beginning part again, in this field, there's so many people who hit the ground running, 
know what they want to do middle school high school have a track and like you said not necessarily always have the same drive but coming back into this field later have you ever felt almost like you were a step behind all those who had entered the field from the gun uh was there ever any kind of trepidation in that area or have you always felt like because you had this different experience you had something to offer there was an angle for you to come in and just hit the ground running that's a great question and you know just thinking about it honestly i never felt like i was coming in later i didn't ever really feel like that was an impact to me but imposter syndrome is real let's put it that way right so as you grow as a professional right you you enter new, you're green, you're like, okay, can I trust my experiences? Can I trust what I'm doing? Am I knowledgeable enough for this to be taken seriously? So I wouldn't really qualify that as an age-related issue. I think this applies to everybody. Um, but after years of working in the field, you come to know and trust your abilities and your instincts and your knowledge. Um, so I really wouldn't say that that was something that was in the forefront of my mind a lot, you know, in the back of my mind, it was like maybe there every once in a while, but it was something that meant so much to me. It didn't really matter. (laughs) You know, as, as I get ready to launch explore wild, I feel that maybe a little bit more. Um, cause I'm going to be 41 this year and you wonder where the time went and you're just like, is this the right time to be launching this company? But at the same time, you can't spend a lot of time overthinking things because you're just going to talk yourself out of something that's going to be potentially amazing and impactful. So it's like you can have that conversation with yourself, but just keep moving forward. That's awesome. So speaking of that moving forward, when you first entered this field, you've talked about how you've now started your own company. You've done international research. You've checked all these boxes that are dreams for most of us. What were your goals when you first saw those mountain lions on your research vessel and decided, I'm going back to school. I want to study mountain lions. What were the goals you set for yourself then? They were very simple. Very simple. Like It's easy to say, I want to answer these specific questions about them. And that was kind of part of it early on to try and figure out these animals, right? So like when I was doing the GIS work, mapping their movement through the landscape, that was more of just, you know, figuring them out for my own self. But after I learned the animals, the questions became more and more and more simple to me, right? Because there's always this question, do you go into applied or do you go into research, right? And I felt like there's a different path for me. And so as I learned more about these lions, you'd hear all of these comments and these stigmas about like about them. Like they're aggressive. They want to eat your kids. They, they're around every corner. They're stalking you. And I'm like, that's not what I'm seeing. <laughs> like, not at all. So the longer I worked around these cats, the longer I got to know them, the question the 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 driving factor became education. And that is the focus. That is my goal right there. Pure and simple is to help people 
understand mountain lions and to see them like they actually are and just have practical grounded conversations with them about mountain lions rather than waiting for the next thing to happen and we continue to be afraid of these cats which is like this positive feedback loop of fear that's completely unnecessary and if we continue down this path of staying afraid of these animals they're just going to keep getting killed and quotas are going to keep going up and it's going to have negative impacts on us whether we realize it or not plus the mountains that we like to go play in the habitat there relies on them the wildlife there relies on them Hunt, hunting opportunity relies on them so everything boils down to education at the end of the day for us because we see that as the most practical way to do good for lions and for people so let's start positive what was one of those most standout memories when you're working with education kind of getting to see somebody's aha moment or getting to realize that you really made a difference through education that's an amazing question so we like tabling events and working with kids, right? And um, we'll actually go to schools and give presentations there. And we actually gave a presentation here at Patagonia Outlet about a month ago. But those moments, I would say those moments really stem with the kids. They start with the kids, right? So I'm thinking back to earlier this spring, we were tabling event at the Ogden Nature Center. And we had mountain lion skulls and hides um, from BYU because of our partnership. They were able to provide that for us. So that really drew people in, right? And these kids just wanted to touch the, the pelt and see the skull and ask all these questions about all these cats. And so as the kids are getting pulled up, of course, their parents are, right? And so we would just have conversations with them and they'd start out with kind of like this fear. Like I've heard that they're dangerous. I've heard that they're scary. I've had one stalk me, you know, and we just have these conversations about what was that experience actually like? Why do you think that they're scary? Why do you think that they're dangerous? Do you know the difference between stalking and curiosity? And so by the end of, of a lot of those conversations, people are like, you can see the body relax. They're just like more interested. They want to have more, or they have more questions about lions and they're just more open and more receptive to learning about them. And that's just through education and being willing to hear them and talk through their concerns, not say you're wrong. That's not what they do. You know, and people want to be heard. They want you know, their concerns to be addressed. And we want to be able to help them with those questions and help them understand these an animals and be a resource for them when they need it. So I would I've say anytime yeah. we do an event with people. <laughs> Definitely. No, I've been doing some tabling events with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and we get a very similar dynamic of kid is fascinated, adults trepidatious, and they come forward sometimes in a, a little bit prickly even. And you just, after that conversation over time, you start to see them relax. And what it makes me realize is we go into classrooms as well and work with this year. It's been mainly fourth graders. And it makes you think, 
okay, so I've worked with this fourth grader, but if they go home, tell their parent what they did today, that they worked with CPW and their parent has a negative reaction to us, does that, is that just going to erase everything we did? Whereas when you're at these tabling events and you're able to talk to the kid, but also shift the attitude of the adult just enough that maybe they aren't shutting down the their child's excitement that that's going to make an even larger impact so it's pretty awesome seeing those tabling events and i can't imagine being able to show the mountain lion uh skull the mountain lion and you have so many great videos and photos as well to show those the kids must absolutely love that side of it they do. We actually bring um, a computer. I, I want to get a little actual monitor at some point, but I bring my my Mac with me to events too, and I'll stream videos for. It's basically a loop. It restarts every hour, right? And so I'll have the volume up on these videos because we get a lot of the different vocalizations, and people will hear them. They're like, I, "I've heard that before. That sounds like a bird." And it really is interesting how many different types of vocalizations they make. It, it's truly incredible. Um, but when they see the footage and they actually see how the cats interact with one another and they hear them, again, it, it's just one of those things you almost never see. So there's so much opportunity and so much value in talking with people, letting them touch the pelt of a lion and see this footage and just it really opens the door for a lot of really productive conversations definitely and i mean when i hear people talk about mountain lions a lot of times it kind of brings me back to my childhood growing up surfing and sharks and now kristen and i have done a couple of shark dives even and you talk to people and it's the to them it's almost a fear of something unseen that could take them out at any time without them knowing and i hear that same fear when it comes to mountain lions a lot of times people feel like oh they're out there we never see them but they could get me at any time and so with showing those videos the pelts are you able to feel like you can remove some of that stigma of you're always being stalked in nature or is that something that's pretty deeply rooted in people i think it's kind of a combination of both i think you know I think we forget that we're animals and we have animal instincts and fear is a, a mechanism that helps keep us alive. Right. So it's easy to latch onto that feeling. Um, but I genuinely think that these conversations do help allay some of those concerns, especially when I talk to people about how many lions I've seen and been up close with in the wild. I've seen 12 now without the use of hounds. So six more with the use of hounds. So I've seen 18 now. And this ranges from older cats to younger cats to moms with kittens. And when you share those experiences with them, too, and they see that I've personally lived. I was not eaten. I was not mauled. I was about 10, 15 yards away from a mom and three kittens. And it's just one of those things where you talk through it. You talk through the experience with them. You answer any questions they might have about it. And help clarify some of the terminology. Like the word stalking almost makes me cringe sometimes because you hear that so often. And I'm just like, <sighs> you look at a video of someone shares with you and 
you're like, that's not stalking behavior. That's defensive behavior. That's a mom trying to put distance between a threat, which is you and her kittens. So it's just like clarifying what their body language is actually telling you, sharing that with people, and really just having a grounded conversation. And again, addressing what scares them about mountain lions and then coming at it with, well, these are the facts. And this is what I personally experienced myself. And to date with all the lines I've seen, I've genuinely never felt threatened. Even when I was face to face with that mom who was definitely upset with me. So (laughs) I think that helps people understand that, okay, they're not just there to eat us. Um, It's interesting too, with all of the different camera traps that we run, you do see people and lions coexisting. So when I say that, I think of a couple of clips in particular. And we have some sets that are in really remote areas, and we have some sets that are closer to trails. It just depends on where we're cutting a sign. And so with some of the trail cameras that we have closer to trails, there's one video, there's a few videos actually, um, but a couple that come to mind that I'll tell you about. So there's one video of a female laying underneath the tree middle of the day. And this camera was probably 160 yards off the trail. And so she's laying there and the camera's triggering. And then all of a sudden you hear people's voices and she perks up. She looks towards the people. She gets up and takes off. So it's one of those situations where it's like she heard us and she's just like, nope, bye. (laughs) And then there's another clip. Uh, not that long ago, maybe a month and a half ago, of a young male mountain lion sitting at the base of a tree. And you see two cyclists go by on the trail and he just sits there and watches and waits. And then you'll you'll see his eyes perk up in the video. And his head turns and he's like, oh, what is that? And then you hear a female vocalizing behind him. So we have two active cats in an area where people are biking through and they're not concerned with the people, they're concerned with each other. So they're around us all the time. And I think it's just important that we realize how many people are out in the mountains every single day without issue. But, you know, when something does happen with the lion, it's scary. It's kind of like a plane crash. I always equate it to a plane crash because everyone knows that flying is safer than driving. Yet there's more fear of flying because when something happens, it's more catastrophic, right? Same exact thing with lions. When something happens, it's like, oh my God, this is terrifying. And then the media doesn't really help because they perpetuate that fear because they say it's terrifying or scary or something with negative uh, connotation to sell those stories. But what I'd really like to see, and we've been working with the media here quite a bit to actually share positive stories about lions. So we actually had a video go viral. What was it? Was it this spring or last fall? Timelines are blurry. Anyway, it was a mom and three kittens. And that actually gained a lot of traction. And I think that was really important for people to see. Because it it wasn't something negative of lions that they were being exposed to. It was something positive for lions. And I'd really like people to come to realize that they're up there all the time. They do an amazing job of coexisting with us. And honestly, there's a lot that we can do to coexist better with them. 
No, so much of that has brought up, I guess the first uh, thing it made me think of was uh, in Instagram, two of my friends on Instagram having a conversation because one posted a photo of a run and like the third or fourth photo, they were like, and I was like, I, I almost got attacked by a mountain lion and it ended up being a dog track that they'd taken a photo of. Yeah. And it makes that sort of thing makes me think the first podcast I did was with a uh, uh, cheetah biologist, Brian Shu, And uh, some of the research that he's actually currently looking at in Africa is does someone's ability to tell cats apart change their attitudes towards the cat? So if I think everything is a leopard, Am I more scared than if I know that's a cheetah, that's a lion, that's a leopard, that's a hyena? Does that knowledge help me change my perception of each species? And so I guess with that, what I really want to ask you is, do you see a need to change not just perception, but the knowledge level that a lot of people just don't? know enough about these cats to form their own opinion? Yeah, again, great question. Absolutely. Um, it's easy to be afraid of what we don't understand, honestly. And so the more information that people have available to them in a digestible manner. And I say that because of my film background and my arts background and my wildlife biology background, right? And so this is a lot of the reasons why I decided to go into education. So it seems like there are two different ways of looking at things, right? More practical ground knowledge. I'm out in the field. I'm just Joe Blow. I hunt. I understand the landscape. Just like that boots on the ground mentality of understanding what's around you. But then there's also the scientific approach, which is important, but I feel like it gets lost on most people, right? So no one's going to want to sit down or at the average person isn't going to want to sit down and go through some peer-reviewed article to try and understand an animal, right? So what we try to do is break all this down into something that's more digestible to everybody. And it makes it interesting to them. And it helps them want to learn more about mountain lions because it's not like this intimidating, oh, I have to have this really scientific background to really understand what's going on with them. You really don't honestly. And we take people out into the field sometimes and teach them about tracking and show them how to read the landscape and let them set a camera with us. And when they come back with us again in a few weeks and they look at that video themselves of the line that they tracked, and that's their footage. I've seen it touch so many people and turn them from like this scary, intimidating animal to, oh my God, they're cool. I want to go out and track some more, you know? So just having that opportunity to share with people through education while lions are like, I think that we're gaining a lot of ground here in Utah. And one of those things in terms of sharing information, you mentioned working with so many different stakeholders and different groups, groups that I'm sure a lot of people would be surprised you were closely with and you're learning that you're very closely aligned with a lot of these groups. So what have what information have you really developed by being able to work with such a broad array of stakeholders? 
Yeah. So let's go back a few years here. <laughs> so when I first started getting into conservation work, I, I did lean more towards like the advocacy realm, right? Like too many lions are being killed. Oh my God, we have to put a stop to this. Just be fully transparent there. But then this longer I started working here and understanding the social dynamics and the different wildlife stakeholder groups, it really changed my mind on a lot of things, right? So I used to be completely anti-hounding. I really was until a houndsman reached out to me and said, hey, we're trying to do the same thing you guys are. And so I think that there's a lot to be said for being willing to listen to someone from the other side because you never know what you're going to learn. And I really hate your side, our side, their side, his side. I hate that because it shouldn't be that side. The way I look at it is I work for the lions and I'll work with whoever I have to work with for the lions because at the end of the day, they're what matter. And, you know, just going out in the field with the houndsmen, for example, and seeing their passion for the sport that they do and realizing that not all of them do want to kill lions and seeing that they do have a really good pulse on what's going on with lions in different areas where they can approach the division of wildlife resources here and say, Hey, you're, you're killing too many lions in this unit. We need you to drop down. They have that knowledge that a lot of the general population really doesn't. And there's a lot of conservation value in that. And I think that that needs to be recognized. And Honestly, houndsmen contribute a lot to research. We couldn't be getting this many callers out for the study if we didn't have them. So we don't always see eye to eye with the different wildlife stakeholder groups, right? I used to hunt, but I don't anymore. So I understand the tradition behind it. You know, so there's a lot to be said for taking the time having a conversation with someone that you think you might not agree with. Because in my experience, what I've seen is that we agree on 85% of the things. And imagine how much more we could get done if we just shoved that 15% that we don't agree on to the wayside and said, hey, let's work together on what we do agree on because we'd get a lot more done. That's absolutely awesome. Because I mean, it's just it's a perspective that I feel like coming into this field, I definitely had the opposite. I was extremely anti-hunting in every aspect. And then you start to actually look at the science, look at the management and realize the importance of something that you don't originally understand. So it's that whole advocacy side is absolutely phenomenal. But uh, I do want to jump back real quick before we really dive deep into the work you're doing right now and ask when you took the leap to found your own nonprofit, what were, I guess on one hand, what were some of the goals you had, but what were some of the trepidations you had when mm -hmm. really diving in? So amazing question. My goals are always, I think going to be pretty much the same. Education, that's it. I just want to do it on a bigger scale, right? How many more people can we reach by being a nonprofit? And so that goal will generally always be the underlying driver of everything that we do. We do want to take on more events, do more projects, do more collaborative work. Um, 
one of the bigger trepidations of actually going nonprofit was the paperwork side of things. I am not an admin person. Um, that was the biggest thing that held me back. And so when a colleague of mine reached out and said, have you thought about fiscal sponsorship? I'm like, no, tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> so she was telling me about how she got her organization fiscally sponsored through social and environmental entrepreneurs. And I looked into them more and I'm like, this is manageable. We can do this. I can still do the important work that we want to do here in terms of education and outreach and working with communities and the public and just having these conversations without being bogged down by having a board and handling all of the financials and having to worry about HR and all of the admin work that comes with being a 501c3. And we can still collect donations and do our fundraising so it's kind of the best of both worlds and it fits for us because right now it gives us the opportunity to work on the relationships that we need here in Utah to eventually grow into something bigger. So if anyone's thinking about going nonprofit, I would say check out a fiscal sponsor. There are a few options out there. Um, and I've honestly been incredibly happy with C, which is social and, and environmental entrepreneurs. That's awesome. And so then as we dive into this research, what is your why today? What do you hold on to when you go through kind of these ups and downs? So, yes. Oh, my why is always the lions every day. So I've spent years now tracking them and studying them and watching them on cameras in two different continents, right? it always boils back down to them. And so I think about the different family groups and the different individuals that we've gotten to see over the years. And anytime I'm going through a really rough patch, like this last winter was probably the hardest one I've ever been through uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, every time where I'm just like, it doesn't matter. This is getting too hard. It's too much. I think about those different individuals and I'm like, if we stop, they pay the price. And to me, it's always worth it to just keep moving forward. I mean, that definitely, I mean, keeping a simple, not that it's simple, but a, a why that's so easy to hold on to the mountain mm -hmm. lions must make it that much easier to just always have it in in reach yeah <laughs> but it, uh, it's so easy in life to like overcomplicate things you don't have to like i love the kiss principle i think we could get a lot more done if we really adhered to that and said okay what do i really want i want to see lions better protected okay that that's it go for it you know do whatever you have to do to accomplish that work with whoever you have to work with to accomplish that but focus on that that's my why and speaking of better protected that's a great transition because i had a lot of uh career-based or work-based uh questions to lead into this but we've covered a lot of them already in just our general conversation so i want to dive right in uh and before diving right into house bill 469 i think it's best uh just to ask you to give the listeners a brief kind of synopsis of what House Bill 469 is, because we're going to be talking about this for the next few minutes. 
Yeah. So House Bill 469 was a bill that was introduced in the last legislative session that was fairly innocuous overall. And it just covered general wildlife amendments to management and legislation here in the state. And so for the most part, there weren't a lot of concerns about 469 until at the very last minute after the bill was voted on in the House and it had gone through its third reading, two representatives here added last minute language that the public had no opportunity to comment on. And in fact, many of the people who voted on it didn't even know it had been added. Um, Opens mountain lions up to year-round hunting and adds trapping to the mix, too, because prior to this, lions couldn't be trapped in Utah. Um, It also changes their management status so that anyone with a general hunting license, you don't have to have a special permit or anything like that anymore, can kill a lion. And then, uh, so any type of trap can be used too. So not just leg holds, but also snares. Um, So a bill that was once not terrible became absolutely devastating to mountain lions. And so 469, we, we raised a lot of public awareness and we had a lot of folks reach out to the governor through a collaborative effort with us and the houndsmen and different hunting groups and different advocacy groups. We had a massive outpouring to Governor Cox to try and get him to veto at least that section of 469. And he unfortunately ignored the public input from that, despite the way that the language was added to the bill and signed it into law in March. So it's had a pretty significant impact on wildlife stakeholders here, and it will have a pretty big impact on mountain lions in the state. And frankly, it's it's a black eye for Utah in terms of lion management, because the language limits pretty severely how the division can manage mountain lions. And it sends us on a trajectory that's much closer to Texas, where mountain lions are not a protected species in any way, shape, or form. And so, rightfully so, there are a lot of issues that we have with this. So, it, it pretty much defined the next couple of years for what we're going to be doing. So, my first question is, what are the direct impacts you've seen from this bill? Since you're camera trapping, you're out there every day. What are the direct impacts you've seen so far? It's only been about three months, so mm-hmm. haven't had too much time. But uh, are you already seeing uh, changes in? It's it's too early to say, honestly. I mean, so we've got trail cameras placed throughout the central region for the central region cougar study. I've seen a lot less lion movement on our cameras overall. But it's way too early to say if it was because of this new law. Um, I think the next year will be telling with what happens in terms of the impacts on lions. And I'm really not looking forward to finding out because, and I was talking to one of my colleagues at the Houndsman Association about this. The concern is with how many traps and snares can be out on the mountain, especially snares in particular. 
it's not going to be difficult to wipe out an entire mountain of lions because once you know how to find a lion, they're not hard to catch. So we're really concerned about how the next year, two years, three years, however long this law remains in place. This, there are a lot of questions and we're all watching it very closely. Let's put it that way. And you mentioned that there's you were able to get the word out and have a lot of people reach out to the government, uh, to the governor to try to prevent this bill from going in. Do you feel like Utah now has a pretty good idea that this bill has been enacted or there, or are there a lot of people who have no idea that mountain lions are in this kind of danger? I think it's a mix of both. I think because of how collaborative that outreach effort was, we have had international attention paid to Utah because of this. So like Ivan Carter, who is a world renowned conservationist has actually publicized on his social media because he's come out here and worked on the Cougar study too with our, with our team. And so we have international attention on Utah now. So a lot more people are paying attention and are aware of what's going on, but there's always room for improvement. And that's why in the next, year, two years, we really want to work on growing those education efforts and tapping into those communities that may not be as aware of what's going on or may not even care about what's going on. And just generating that interest in that knowledge base about this new law and how it's not only going to affect lions, but also the ecosystems that rely on the role that they play there as a keystone species, because we will see impact as they're heavily removed from the landscape here. And so then you also work on the research side as well. Do you see any possibilities here for with all the camera traps and all the data you're already collecting to hopefully be able to try to collect baseline data from before and after this bill's enacted to try to be able to use that as part of your education and outreach? Yeah. So we are actually planning on using a lot of the data that's collected from the camera traps and from the collared cats, but also as I understand it, and this is in a state of flux, um, I've actually gotten a, a couple of mixed signals from the division on how they're going to handle this new legislation um, but they're also going to be collecting mortality data and recording how a cat was killed and just starting to really document the impact that they're seeing on lions throughout the state. And then that will be used to inform if they can influence management later on down the line. But right now, unfortunately, the division and their hands are tied. I don't fault them at all. It, it It's a rock and a hard spot, right? They had this legislation that was passed, signed into law by the governor, and now they have to just work with what was put down on paper and interpret it as best as they can to meet the needs, uh, meet what the representatives had in mind when they added that language. Um, so just so much is in flux right now. And I think everyone's doing the best that they can. But a lot of different wildlife stakeholder groups and a lot of sentiments that we're getting with, from within the agency are just like, this has been a really rough blow for lions. And we're all just trying to do damage control and figure out the next steps. So there's a lot of unanswered questions at this point. And so then what 
are the goals in terms of trying to get this reversed? Is this something where you have to wait for a new administration? Or Mm -hmm. do you see that maybe if you collect the right data, you might be able to manage to get this reversed sooner? So since it's legislation, there there would have to be um, counter legislation introduced in order to overturn or improve this. So other than that, I mean, it, it's pretty much law. It, it is law. And there there's not much that we can do outside of that until the law itself has been um, amended. So... I again, I would like to say more, but this is one of those situations where we're just kind of waiting. <laughs> so what's the emotional impact that you you saw on you and your colleagues when mm-hmm. something like this, especially the fact that you didn't really have a chance to fight it. It was introduced so late and came about so quickly. It caught you all by surprise. What's the emotional impact you've seen on your colleagues and yourself? I am so glad you asked that because it's something you don't hear talked about, right? Much in the conservation world because, and and this is something that I really think needs to be addressed more, especially in a world where mental health is coming more and more to the forefront. I think we need to have these conversations about the emotional impact and about of things like this, especially when it's work that you pour all of you into, right? Um, And this goes to anyone who's passionate about anything. It was hard. Like, I'm still recovering from the new law. And knowing how it will impact these cats, because these are not just dumb animals. You can't lump them into a box. They're not these vicious, bloodthirsty animals that are lurking around every corner. They're smart. They're social they interact with one another. They're patient with us. So knowing them outside of just like the research realm, outside of just like the education realm, but knowing them as an animal, as an individual, as a family, and seeing that just two senators at the last minute can introduce legislation that completely upends everything and put so many of these animals into the crosshair science aside just these living breathing creatures oh i unplugged for a while i had to because and and this is really important i think for anyone who gets into conservation and gets into advocacy is it's easy to think that you need to do more all the time you need to keep pushing but you gotta take time for yourself and you need to disconnect from it for a little bit to recharge because it is emotionally demanding work. It comes with ups. It comes with downs. It can be fun. But, and this is one thing I chuckle about because we get a lot, a lot of folks that reach out to us to go out in the field with us. And then they go out in the field with us and they're like, oh my God, that's terrible. <laughs> because just like how steep and awful some days can be. But, you know, you need to be able to take that time for you to unplug and disconnect from it so you can keep doing your best work possible because it's physically challenging, it's emotionally challenging, it's mentally challenging. And if you don't take that time for yourself, you can't do your best work for for whatever species that you're working for. So this might be slightly controversial to compare this to, but 
uh, a lot of nurses, physical therapists, doctors during COVID talked about empathy fatigue as they went through COVID. And I'm seeing some kind of parallels talking to you about working in such a high stress area of conservation. So you talked about unplugging and stepping away, but have you found any anything specific that lets you recharge any advice that you would give others on? I know it might work for you and not them, but something that you'd want to share with others on like, this is a way that I've been able to recharge and re-enter the fight. Yeah. Again, great question. And it's different for everyone. And so my life is being on the mountain, right? (laughs) And I love camera trapping. It's just what I do, you know? And at the same time, it's like, I would find myself I'm like, I'm just going to go check some cameras. I'm not going to think about this. I'm not going to worry about this law right now. And then I'd be going up there and I'd be, I'd start thinking about, oh my God, they're going to kill all of these cats. Oh my God. Who are we going to lose this year? And so for me, recharging was, okay, you can't go check cameras. You can't go for a hike. You can't go biking because you're just going to think about lions and what they're doing to them. So my outlet has been paddle boarding. <laughs> I get out on the water and I just putz around and I go for a swim. And now with a foster dog, we throw him in the water. And when you watch him try and swim from paddleboard to paddleboard, and then he jumps in and it pushes you off. You're not thinking about it, right? You're not thinking about the work. You're not thinking about everything that's getting to you. And so, and maybe this comes from being from Michigan, you know, being a water person. And so when I come back from that, I'm just like, oh, I feel good. All right, let's go. Let's go back to work now. <laughs> because it's so easy to go into workaholic mode. And I think anyone who starts their own business, who works in conservation or works towards something that they're passionate about, like it's hard to turn it off. You don't just turn it off. It's always there. But if you can find something that just lets you relax for a little while, it does help. It's worth it. That's fascinating because knowing you, I would have guessed that mountain biking or rock climbing would have been the outlet so it's fascinating that you're actually having to take the time to step away even from what originally was your outlet Mm -hmm. and so i guess that popped another question into my head of you've turned your passion into a career what obstacles have you found with that because people always talk about how amazing that is yet now it is your career So that carries its own set of issues. So what obstacles have you found in that area? Yeah. So I would say the biggest obstacle is having the work-life balance, honestly, because my tendencies are being a workaholic. I love the work that I do and it's all I want to do. But if you don't learn how to turn it off, you get that compassion fatigue. And then when you get that compassion fatigue, you don't do your best work, right? So you have to learn how to turn it off at some point and go do something fun. That, that's been one of the biggest obstacles for me. And then just clarifying what your ideas are, right? And I, I would say more so than that is being resistant to different ideas that might challenge your thought processes, right? So, and we touched on this earlier, but at the beginning, I had this idea that houndsmen were like these awful people. You don't work with them. And when I finally let go of that resistance of saying that I don't want to work with these people, I don't trust them, I don't like what they do, 
by saying, no, let's just open our minds and just be open to different ideas and different concepts. That broke down one of the biggest obstacles I think that we faced here in Utah. Because a lot of the times, like advocacy groups are kind of viewed as like the antis, they don't want to work with anyone and it closes doors, right? But the goal in conservation is to open as many doors as possible. And by being willing to listen to these different groups and having an open mind, I think that removed one of the biggest obstacles we faced is because we can work with everybody, knowing full well we're not always going to agree and just knowing that that's okay, right? And we can talk about things that we do agree on. And I, I honestly, genuinely in my bones feel like that was the biggest obstacle we overcame here in our work honestly. So I'm trying to think of any other obstacles. I mean, there's the financial end of things, learning how to fund an organization, grants, donations, things like that. Early on, we pretty much paid for everything right out of pocket. And that was okay, because we could, you know. Um, But through the different partnerships that we have now, it's easier to come by equipment and do the work that we're trying to do. So just the typical things like the admin side of things, the relationship side of things, and then realizing that you have to take time for you. Definitely. So as part of that answer, you talked about being tapped into a lot of those different groups. Do you feel like there was a, that Utah was in a social place that allowed uh, Bill 469 to pass? Or do you feel like had the majority of Utah been uh, allowed to participate in this discussion, they would have been against those late additions to the bill. Awesome question. So I think, no, no, I know that if Utahns on the whole were invited at the table to talk about this legislation, it wouldn't have passed. Um, Especially talking to all of the different wildlife stakeholder groups here after that language was introduced and who we worked with to get the information out there. So we've actually had hunting groups speak out against it. We've had trapping groups speak out against it. We've had houndsmen speak about out against it. I've only heard of maybe a handful of people that have thought that this is a good idea. But for the most part, Utahns do not support this. They want science-based management. They want the division to be able to determine how lions are managed. They want experts like the biologists who have devoted years of their lives and are experts in these animals and the ecosystems that they're a part of to manage them, not politicians who don't understand the biology and the impacts of what they're doing, especially with language like this, which is completely deleterious and is going to have significant impacts throughout Utah. So honestly, I I really don't think that this would have become a law had the public had an opportunity to voice their concerns about it from the get-go. So you talked already about uh, talking to hunters and houndsmen about this. What is their general? Because I feel like a lot of people out there would just assume hunters would be in on this who i guess who don't know the hunting community because mm-hmm. most hunters are conservationists in their heart but yeah. uh 
what have you been surprised by any reaction that these groups have had or what's kind of been the consensus in those groups as a reaction to this bill yeah so it, it's again one of those things like there's concern about the political overreach right well well some individuals might be in favor of the law because they want more deer i'm using air quotes here um they're still concerned about the political overreach and how this language is added at the last possible minute. And there's concern for the impacts that that will have on other wildlife species. So like, let's say they did this to lion, what's to stop them from doing this to deer or elk or something like that. So there's a lot of concern about the precedence that this sets. If, you know, whether they're for or against lions, it could go either way, but, the political move, there's a lot of concerns about, which is completely understandable. I mean, we've had two politicians step in and completely overhaul the management of a single species in the blink of an eye. Um, but also, like, a lot of hunters, and especially houndsmen, really understand that mountain lions are vital and that they want them on the landscape and that they can keep herds healthier and limit the spread of disease and you know, just that they're an important and valuable species to have here. Now, houndsmen want them to chase hunters. You know, they may or may not hunt lions. Some do, some don't. But they have a broader view of how management is done and done properly. So a lot of them don't support it from both the political and the management standpoint. And you mentioned more deer in air quotes. So that made me really want to ask, what about the science behind mountain lion life history and how mountain lion ecology would you want to share with people to kind of help them understand that certain aspects like uh, removing mountain lion probably won't bring more deer mm -hmm. to an ecosystem? What about the science would you really want to share with people? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um so through our partnership with BYU and the Division of Wildlife Resources, we've already got a good, pretty good pulse on how heavy harvest of lions impacts deer. So in January of 2020, House Bill 125 was introduced and passed into law, which mandated the Division of Wildlife Resources to increase predator harvest anytime big game species dip below a certain threshold, right? So lions were already being hit really heavily throughout the majority of Utah. So we had predator management units in over 65% of the state, which basically means that hunting there is unlimited. So we've already had a really heavy harvest. And throughout all of Utah, we've seen an increase in only one unit. That's it in mule deer. So it's not really being supported by the data at this point. And there's also research out there that's finding that heavy hunting of lions is actually having more of a negative impact on deer because what happens is more often than not when a hunter goes in, they're looking for the trophy animal, right? They want a really big cat. And so they're going out there and they're removing these territorial animals that have been in an area for quite a while in some cases there's always some fluctuation right um so then you have an influx of a lot younger less experienced cats that don't really have their hunting skills dialed in right 
So older cats can be a little bit better at subduing larger prey like elk. So you have prey diversification. Whereas with a lot of younger cats, you have more cats that are better at killing elk and deer. Sorry, you have more younger cats that are better at killing deer. So in essence, they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot, if you will, um, by killing so many of these cats, you have a lot of younger cats competing for those resources, which is even more deer. Ergo, you have less deer. So it doesn't really work at the end of the day. So that's a really interesting perspective because when you mentioned negative impacts, my first thought went to our uh, mountain lions. Do they tend to hunt healthier deer or do they, like most big cats, go after the sick or the old? So there, it depends, honestly, on the vi- individual. They're opportunistic. Um, but there are studies that are finding that lions do target deer affected with chronic wasting and other illnesses. They do also go for the younger, older and younger animals too. Um, but again, they're opportunistic. And if there's a deer there, there's a deer there. So, <laughs> I mean, yes, to a point, I would say yes with with an asterisk. <laughs> okay, because that chronic wasting disease side was actually what I thought might be the biggest impact. Because if mm-hmm. they're managing to thin out chronic wasting disease, that's going to help a whole herd. Yeah. So that is kind of that's the perspective I thought. So it was fascinating hearing the other side of it with the ecology and behavioral side being an impact as well. Mm-hmm. So. I guess what I really want to ask now is how can people get involved? So the biggest thing that we're asking people to do right now is stay in touch with your representatives. They need to be hearing from us consistently, build a relationship with them. And I think that's one of the reasons why hunting groups and uh, representatives like this are so effective at getting legislation passed is because they're already hearing from hunters, they're hearing from ranchers, they're they're hearing from ag all the time. They're that bug in the ear, right? And they don't let up. So if we want to get lions protected again, we're going to have to take a page from that book and do the same thing. We have to stay in touch with our representatives all the time because if they don't hear from us, they'll assume it's not important to us and then they'll just let it go, right? So we need to stay in touch with them and let them know that, hey, if you want our vote, you have to care about wildlife. You have to care about mountain lions. You have to support legislation that's going to get them protected again. And those are our next best steps. Another thing that people can do is get in touch with, say, outdoor businesses here that can have an influence on representatives and say, I won't shop at your store or I will shop at your store. If you support this legislation that open lines up to your own hunting and trapping, or I will shop at your store if you support this new legislation that's going to restore management. So there's a lot of little things like that, but it's 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 a lot of politicking, and I understand it's uncomfortable for a lot of people. It wasn't comfortable for me. Like my background is not in politics at all. So like when this all happened, it was like, okay, well, let's figure this out, right? And the thing is, if you care about something enough, and and I think lions are incredible animals that need our help, you, you got to just step out of your comfort zone. 
And the first couple of times I called the governor's office and talked to my representatives, it was like, oh, this is a little weird. But the more you do it, it's really not that bad. And they they want to hear from you. They want to help you as best as they can. But that's they're not going to reach out to you. That starts with you. You have to open that door. You have to make that phone call. You have to send out that email. And they're, they're really not that bad. But the, that's really what we need to do at this point if we want to do anything for Reliance here in Utah. So then stepping back a little more, since you got started a little later in uh, trying to transition into conservation, what advice would you have for people out there who might not even be interested in trying to make this their career, but want to be involved across the country in something with cats, since that's your area of expertise? What are ways they can either, whether it's citizen science or just getting out and trying to see big cats or smaller cats, uh, what are ways that people could get involved in their everyday lives? Yeah. So great question. Um, There's a lot that they can do. It depends on how involved they want to get, right? So if they just want to support local efforts, then donate. That's a great way to do it because nonprofits are always hungry for resources. We, you know, there's a lot of competition for grants and funding and whatnot, and donations go a long way. They really do in supporting the work that we do. If you want to get more involved, I love what you said about citizen science. There's an amazing project here called Wasich Wildlife Watch. And that's a citizen science project that's being led by a researcher. I want to say it's at University of Utah. And They've got, I want to say it's over 120 cameras out on the mountain that they rely on volunteers to go check and maintain throughout the field season, which is just the summer. Um, Another thing that you could do is let's say that you're already running your own cameras and you're documenting some really interesting interactions between wildlife species. Share that with an organization that's near and dear to your heart. Or if you're aware of any studies that are going on and you capture footage within the boundaries of the study area, share that with them. So there's just a lot of little things like that that you can do. Uh, You can also volunteer your time at different organizations. We get a lot of interest in people volunteering with us, and it's so appreciated. Um, It's one of those many hands make for light work things. And you don't even have to volunteer a ton of time. It can just be a handful of hours a week or a month. Um, and just being open to the different types of volunteer opportunities too. Like, let's say that you want to get on the field, but there's maybe not necessarily a field opportunity open. Be open to whatever they might have at that point in time and just know that it makes a difference. Yeah. And on that note, it's amazing how many groups actually accept volunteer help. Uh, this last winter when I was unemployed, I was volunteering with the National Eagle and Wildlife Property Repository for uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And I would not have thought that, you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife would need eight to 12 hours a week. But it's, you know, everybody is pretty short staffed in this field. There's only so much funding that goes around. So no matter what group you're working with, there's always room for volunteering. Mm -hmm. So that's a great kind of note to transition away, I guess, from your direct work to a few more general questions I wanted to ask to wrap this up. So I like kind of 
having the same few questions to wrap up the podcast each time. And the first one's actually going to be, what part of conservation today do you feel needs our attention the most? Mm. That boils back down to what we're doing with UMLC, and that's education and working with communities. Because again, I think the science end of things, it can be intimidating to people, you know, and especially, you know, coming from the standpoint of this new law, the political side of things can be really daunting to people. So in terms of conservation and being effective in the work that we do, we really need to focus on education on all standpoints, like what areas aren't fully understood or cause people a little bit of concern. And again, the politics side right there. If we can have different groups really dial in on communicating the science or communicating how you can get involved politically or, or, or things like that and make it more approachable to people, I think that most every organization out there will be more successful. And what education strategies have you found the most successful? You mentioned tabling, especially with families earlier, mm-hmm. but are there any other strategies that you found a lot of success in? Yeah, so... Community presentations, not necessarily tabling, but going out to communities and giving presentations. And for us, talking to them about lions, what they're like, their biology, their behavior, how to understand what what a lion is telling you if, when you see it, and then being there to be able to ask answer questions when they ask them is incredibly valuable. Um. That I, I would say that that's absolutely huge. Um, trying to think of other ideas. I actually had one, but I lost it. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty typical when you're talking for Pretty over typical. an hour. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, so to transition to the next one, what concerns you about the future of conservation? Oh, that's a loaded question but a very important one what concerns me is again it boils back down to the law how public opinion and input was completely ignored in this situation in utah with 469 where we had two representatives come in and completely change things on a whim well not really on a whim it was very calculated what they did but it sets a dangerous precedence and my concern is politics becoming far more involved in wildlife management than is scientifically justifiable right so politicians do have a role but how much of that role in wildlife management i think is up in the air right now and so I'm I'm going to be watching really closely in the next few years to see what happens after 469, what other states are going to follow this lead and say, oh, well, look what Utah did. They just passed a law that says we can kill as many lions as we want. Let's do that. So how how is that going to impact different predator species? How is that going to impact other wildlife? I think that there's just a lot of open questions right there. And I'm really, I'm, I'm very concerned. <laughs> about how wildlife management in the United States is going to be impacted in the next few years. Do you see the U.S. too as almost a beacon 
to the global conservation world? Or do you feel the global conservation world is almost a beacon to the US? Where do you see that what we do, do you think that's kind of a trickle effect out? Or do you Mm. see people starting to look out and trying to adapt that inward? That's a, again, a great question. I'm not sure I can answer that one as best as I, as good as someone else might be able to, but I can talk to one observation I made and that's thinking in terms of mountain lions, pumas and Patagonia. So in Patagonia, tourists, photographers can go down there and meet with a guide who can take you out into the field and you can actually spend time with wild pumas taking photographs and experiencing them in their natural ecosystem. And that's a model that I don't think is completely realistic or or unrealistic for North America, for the United States. But I think that there's a lot of fear and a lot of misinformation and a lot of concerns about lions that need to be addressed before we can get to that point. And so to me, what they're doing down in Patagonia is more of that beacon for predators, that that model that I think could be applied elsewhere. You know, and also thinking about like African safaris and whatnot, where photographers can go out. You don't hear about that as much in North America. So coming full circle, I would say that we could actually learn a lot more by looking at these different regions that benefit from non-lethal wildlife tourism, if you will. That's fascinating because Brian Shu brought that exact same point up since he's been doing most of his research in Africa. Uh, when I asked him about how we feel about predators here in the US, that was his exact thought was, we don't try to go see these species. And because our interactions are often lethal, it's going to make them more shy, make them more concerned. And he's actually going down to Patagonia in a few months to uh, to work with a couple of the researchers uh, there, volunteer-wise, I believe, mm. uh, to uh, try to go out and photograph a couple pumas down there. So uh, a lot mm. of those points, it's interesting seeing the parallels uh, from him being an international researcher, you being one here in the U.S. and having kind of the the same viewpoint on that aspect. So that's really fascinating. But uh, just to wrap this up, what would your advice be to future conservationists? My advice would be to trust your gut. Honestly, like if you know something in your heart makes sense, go for it. So like one of the biggest challenges I would say that I met with early on and one of the things that I kind of wrestled with early on was you feel like you have to fit in a certain bubble, right? You either have to do research or you have to be an advocate or you have to be this or you have to be that. You can define your own role. So I can't think of too many organizations that are fully collaborative and work with everybody. And every fiber of my being said, this is the way you do it. This this is what makes sense to me. And once I fully embraced that idea and said, we're just going to go with this. Everything started falling into place, right? Because you weren't holding yourself back anymore. And and that's one of the things that I want young professionals to really realize is 
you can create your own path. There's no right or wrong answer. Just do what resonates with you. Trust your instincts and just go. That's awesome. So as we kind of bring all this to a close, is there anything that you'd like to share with people either about uh, just reiterating how they could help this bill or anything that I missed in my line of questioning? (laughs) Yeah. Honestly, I would just, I'd really ask people to take the time to get to know lions, go at them with an open mind and really realize that there's a lot more to them than we see on our TVs. And as a person who spent time around them, um, in particular, spent a couple months with one family, spent three hours one afternoon with the female as people were running by me down a trail, had no idea she was up there. Just realize that there's more to these cats than the media feeds us. And if you ever have questions, reach out to us because I will talk cat all day long. And <laughs> if you have questions, I'm happy to answer them. And we're just here to be a resource. Well, thank you so much. This was an absolutely awesome conversation. I really enjoyed this. So thank you again for your time and for sharing all your knowledge. Not a problem. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.